the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. All of us at some point are probably guilty of that. If somebody has ever done you wrong, and if you don't think anybody's done you wrong, you're not old enough. When you get to be old enough, you realize, you know, that's what people tend to do, intentionally or unintentionally. When somebody has done you wrong, and then that somebody comes upon difficulty, is there a little tiny bit within you that is glad? Yeah, I mean, in our flesh. I'm not saying we should be, I'm just saying in our flesh, we kind of rejoice over that. Have you caught yourself rejoicing over the misfortunes of those who have done wrong to you? You might even think that they deserve it. Proverbs 24, 17 through 18 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. In today's message, Pastor Gary will encourage you to push away your fleshly desires to rejoice over your enemy's misfortunes. Instead, have pity on them and pray for them. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Obadiah as he continues his message, Don't Take Advantage of Others. He goes into dad and Isaac in his old age, he, Jacob says, I'm here, dad. I'm not here, dad. <clears throat> and Isaac actually says it as he, as Jacob draws near to him, Isaac says, well, it sounds like the voice of Jacob because he can't mask that. But when Isaac begins to feel his arms and the back of his neck and smell him, he's deceived and he's convinced that it is Esau. Jacob is living up to his name, the deceiver. And Isaac prays the blessing, the paternal blessing over Jacob, thinking that it was Esau. Esau will come in later and find out what has happened, and he will be so enraged that he will spend a lifetime trying to hunt Jacob down to kill him. This deep-seated bitterness and animosity between these two brothers has now been something that is transferred to their descendants. The Edomites and the Israelites become long-standing perennial enemies. All because of sibling rivalry. That's how it started. Now, Esau and Jacob will make amends. But by that point, you know how it is? Two people who are at odds can make amends and come back together. But because they've poisoned everybody else around them, and everybody else around them, friends and family, have taken sides. You know how that works? They've taken sides against the other person and there's this internal conflict. The two people who are at odds might make amends, but you got all the peripheral people now who are still at odds with each other. That's what happens. 
And so Esau and Jacob eventually make amends, but their descendants never do. And for generation after generation after generation, the Edomites particularly are vindictive towards the Israelites. They have animus towards the Israelites. And they are always doing things to take advantage of them. In essence, at the start of the study, thus the three-kick rule, they continued to kick the Israelites when they were down. And God says, enough. And he sends Obadiah to confront them. And Obadiah confronts the Edomites, and God indicts them in three ways. If you look in your Bibles here, in verses 10 to 13, there are three things that God says against the Edomites. Here are his indictments against the Edomites. In verse 10, for violence against your brother Jacob. Right? Now, now they're distant cousins, right? Because the descendants of Esau, the descendants of Jacob, that makes them distant cousins. But they're still affectionately referred to here as your brother. He says, you, you Edomites, you descendants of Esau, you are now held accountable for your violence against your brother Jacob, against the Israelites. Shame shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever. Note that. We'll come back to it at the end. He says in verse 11, In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. Now, here's what God is basically saying. He's describing here in this verse, verse 11, when the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem took captive thousands of Jews and deported them as POWs back to Babylon. And what God saw was that during the invasion of the Babylonians against the Israelites, the Edomites were standing on the sidelines with their arms crossed, not helping their brother. Just like, oh, well, hard times come, hard times go. You know, you guys are getting your comeuppance kind of a thing. And they're standing on the sidelines. And God says, you were as one of them. You were just as bad as the Babylonians when they attacked the Israelites because you did nothing to come to the aid of your brothers. So indictment number one against the Edomites was this, that they refused to help a brother in need. Listen, this is important for us to understand even in our day. Sometimes doing nothing is a great sin. Where you see a need or a problem And it is within your capacity to do something, to help, but you don't. God holds us accountable. It's sin. When we have it within our resources and our capacity and our ability to help someone that we see is in need, or to come to their aid, to help rescue them in a time of trouble, and we remain silent and we do nothing, God sees it. And he holds us accountable. You know, there's a familiar verse in the Bible. Most people don't really know where it is. Uh, To be honest with you, in the study of of this sermon, I had to look up where is that verse. But there's a common verse that people quote a lot. It's a very sobering verse. And it says this, be sure your sins will find you out. Okay, it's one of those verses that people quote when they're like, you know, if there's anything sneaky going on in your life, be sure your sins will find you out. Because whatever you're doing that might be evil, God sees it and God's going to expose it. Okay. But that's kind of taken out of context. Here's the context. That verse is found in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. And here's the background of that verse. When the Israelites were given the allotment of land in the promised land, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Ten of the tribes settled on the western side of the Jordan River in what is today known as Israel. But there were two out of the 12 tribes that said, 
to Moses, we like the land on the eastern side of the Jordan River in what is today Jordan. And we would like to live there. Can, can our two tribes live on the eastern side of the Jordan River? And Moses says to them in advance, he says, when you go over there and when you take that inheritance and you end up on the eastern side of the Jordan River, separated from your brothers because of a natural barrier, which is the Jordan River, here's what you must do. If you're going to live over there, here's what you must do. You must still be willing to take up arms and come to the aid of your brothers when they get in war and conflict in, in regards to the settling of the land. So you have to come to their aid, okay? And, he, and, and, he's, and he's, you know, exhorting them. He's like, you can live over there on that side of the Jordan River, but you can't forget your brothers on the western side. You must take up arms, be ready to come over and fight for them because if you do nothing to come to their aid, be sure your sins will find you out. That's the context of that verse. It's the whole idea of the sin is doing nothing. So even though today we use that verse in, we misappropriate it, although I think principally it's true, but we misappropriate its context because we make it sound like if you're doing something sinful, be sure God will, will you know, will expose it and, and your sins will be found out. Okay, that might be principally true, but that's not true to the text. The truth of the text is to do nothing is the sin that God sees. When it is within your capacity to help and to come to somebody's aid and you sit there and you do nothing, this is what he calls the Edomites out for. You refused to come to the aid of your brothers, the Israelites. And James 4.17 says, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, it is sin. Here's the second indictment. If you look in your Bibles at verse 12. In verse 12, Obadiah says, the Lord speaking through him, but you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced, circle that word, rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Here's indictment number two. They rejoiced over the Israelites' misfortune. Yeah, God calls them out there in verse 12. He says, you actually were glad that your fellow Israelites, your cousins here, were were being besieged by the Babylonians. You took delight in that. And listen to me on this, because this is important for all of us to hear. God despises cheering from the sidelines when someone we don't get along with falls on hard times. Is the Bible not accurate for our lives even today? Because some of you are like, ouch. Because it's true. All of us at some point are probably guilty of that. If somebody has ever done you wrong, and if you don't think anybody's done you wrong, you're not old enough. When you get to be old enough, you realize, you know, that's what people tend to do, intentionally or unintentionally. When somebody has done you wrong, and then that somebody comes upon difficulty, is there a little tiny bit within you that is glad? Yeah. I mean, in our flesh, I'm not saying we should be. I'm just saying in our flesh, we kind of rejoice over that. We're like, hey, I, I didn't like that person, and now you know something's happening to them, and so you know suits them right, you know, you know that kind of stuff suits them right, you know they're just getting what they deserve, you know karma, bro. Well, that's not even biblical, but you know whatever. <laughs> Don't say bro and, and karma in the same sentence. All right, but there's a little bit of all of us that rejoice over the misfortune of others who have done us wrong. The Edomites feel like the Israelites have done us wrong. The Israelites feel like the Edomites have done us wrong, back and forth. But the Edomites are standing on the sideline rejoicing that the Babylonians have come into Jerusalem and besieged 
the people and taken Israelites captive. This is Proverbs 24, 17, and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and he does, and it displease him, and it does, and he turn away his wrath from him. It's, it's kind of an ironic thing. It's like, you know, I shouldn't really rejoice that misfortune falls on somebody that has wronged me. On the other hand, if I'm sure not to rejoice, then God will get him. Because if I do rejoice, then God's going to withdraw his hand. So I shouldn't rejoice because I want God to get him. But I can't really think that thought because then I would be rejoicing over that. So it's kind of a, it's a mind game. But at the end of the day, what we have to be aware of is, is there any internal, even the minutest celebration over the misfortune of someone who has wronged you? God says, I take note. I see this. It's interesting in the Bible, Job, in all of the, that he went through, okay, he decided to pray and make sure that there wasn't some kind of sin issue going on in his own life that was causing the misfortune. And one of the things that he highlights is this topic. He searches his heart to see if there's any rejoicing over his enemies. In Job chapter 31, verses 29 to 30, he says this, If I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me, or lifted myself up when evil found him. So he's, he's taking personal inventory. He goes, you know, God, have I done this? And then the next verse he says, Indeed, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. So he realizes, okay, I haven't done that. But, but it's interesting in Scripture that he at least mentions that as this sinful tendency in all of us and Job even asks God, you know, could it be that in my own heart I've incurred some of these things in my life because I've been rejoicing over the misfortune of my enemies? I haven't prayed a curse down on them, God, so no, in reality, I have not wished harm to my enemies. That can't be the reason why I'm suffering as I am. But he at least wants to check his own heart. God sees this kind of thing. He doesn't want us to be glad or to rejoice over the misfortune of others that have wronged us in some way. And then the third thing, the last thing in verse 13, in verse 13, he says, you should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. So here's what he's saying. When the Babylonians rushed in, besieged Jerusalem, took thousands of Jews as POWs, transported them back to Babylon, the city was left basically in ruins, and the Edomites went in after the Babylonians and looted the place. And God saw it. And so the third indictment against them is that they resorted to selfish behavior and took advantage of the Israelites when they were down. They ransacked Jerusalem. The Edomites went in behind the Babylonians and looted the city. They helped themselves to the possessions of their cousins. That's what's meant here when God says, you laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. So Israelites fall in hard times. The Babylonians come against them and deport them, and the Edomites rush in and help themselves to all the personal possessions of the Israelites for their own personal gain, their own selfishness. They capitalized on the Israelites' misfortune to profit themselves, and God took note. And therefore, God is judging the Edomites here, and he says to them, I'm going to totally erase you. I'm going to totally destroy you. We'll get to that in a moment. 
But first, there's a Christmas connection to all of this, okay? In the New Testament, Edomites are mentioned. There's a famous Edomite family, and it has everything to do with the Christmas story. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can if you just want to listen. It's, it's only a few pages over because you're already at the end of the Old Testament, so you can find Matthew pretty easily. And it's Matthew chapter 2. This is a very familiar part of the Christmas story. I'll read the first eight verses of Matthew chapter 2. This is what it says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Of course, We know that that isn't true. He doesn't have any intention of worshiping baby Jesus. King Herod is threatened by the idea that there's another king in town. And when the wise men show up and they say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Herod's thinking, I'm king of the Jews. Who are you talking about? They're like, well, there's a little baby that's been born, the star of the east, and it's guided us here. And so Herod calls in the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Is this true? They're like, yeah. They actually quote one of the minor prophets, the book of Micah. They say, yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, okay, Bethlehem. Oh, king of the Jews. And Herod looks, oh, very inviting and welcoming. And he says, why don't you go make careful search for the child? And when you have found him, come back and tell me that I may worship him also. He has no intention of worshiping Jesus. He wants to weed him out. But after the wise men leave, an angel of the Lord warns them not to return the same way to Herod. And by the way, at the same time, an angel of the Lord has warned Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and escape to Egypt for a time until Herod dies. When Herod realizes he's been outwitted by the wise men, in Matthew 2, verses 16 to 18, he issues an edict demanding that all baby boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, it wasn't just restricted to Bethlehem, it was Bethlehem and its vicinity, the Bible says, to kill all the baby Jewish boys age two and younger in an attempt to try to kill the baby Jesus, who has already been taken to Egypt and escaped. This is Herod. Herod is a king who has been appointed by the Roman government to be king over the Jewish province of Judea. This is Herod. He's not only a king, he's a very insecure and brutal man. History tells us that he had a couple of his sons killed and one of his wives murdered because he thought they were trying to take over the throne, so he killed his own family members. This is Herod. The king, this is Herod, the insecure man, the brutal man. This is Herod, the murderer. Herod is the one who issues this decree for all the baby boys to be slaughtered in Bethlehem and its vicinity. I want you to try to imagine that day, that night. Dozens of families, I don't know, maybe hundreds, Bethlehem and its vicinity. How many two-year-old baby boys and younger were there in the day? There's not a specific record, but I want you to try to imagine the grief the wailing, the screaming, 
the cries, it's devastating. It's horrific. All because one man issues this decree, slaughter them. Herod the king, Herod the insecure man, Herod the brutal man, Herod the murderer, Herod the Edomite. Herod was an Edomite. History tells us that he was from Idumea. Idumea is the Greek term for Edom. Herod was a descendant of Esau. And the animosity of the brothers extends even into the Christmas story where an Edomite is murdering Israelites. And God sees. God sees all of it. And so the prophecy of Obadiah is fulfilled in 70 A.D. If you look at one last verse with me and we'll close in verse 18, back in the book of Obadiah. In verse 18 of Obadiah, it says, The house of Jacob, that's the Israelites, shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. Those are two terms for the Israelites. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them speaking of a fire, and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Show of hands, how many Edomites do you know? There aren't any. The Edomites were destroyed. You know when they were destroyed? The Lord specifically says here through the prophet Obadiah in verse 18, a fire will be kindled in Israel, But the ones who will suffer and die and be burned as stubble will be the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. In 70 AD, the Romans besieged Jerusalem one last time. I say one last time because the temple was destroyed and it has not yet to this day been rebuilt. The irony of all ironies is in 70 AD when the Romans came against the Jews to subdue a Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire, The Edomites came to the aid of their Jewish brothers, but it was too little too late. 20,000 Edomites, the last of the Edomites, were encircled by the Romans in 70 AD. This is not in the Bible, this is in history. Were encircled by the Romans in 70 AD in Jerusalem, and they were all burned in the fire that the Romans laid to the city of Jerusalem. And the last of the Edomites perished in 70 AD by fire, just as Obadiah had prophesied hundreds of years earlier. Listen, God sees. His justice is true. And God is faithful to his promises, even the hard stuff. The Edomites were continual enemies of the Israelites, even down and including the time of the birth of Jesus, and even beyond, you know, the Herod dynasty. They were brutal people. Okay, John the Baptist was killed by a Herod within the Herod dynasty as well. James was killed by Herod Antipas in Acts chapter 12. The Herodian dynasty were some brutal people, and they were the last of the Edomites. And God says, I see these kind of things, and I will judge these things in my time. Enough is enough is enough. So may we be careful when we look in our own lives and we think about how we relate to other people. May it not be said of us that we refuse to help somebody in need when it's within our capacity to do so. Come to the aid of somebody who is in need. Please don't ever rejoice over their misfortune if someone has done you wrong. Leave leave all of that up to the Lord, but don't be cheering from the sidelines, and please don't resort to selfish behavior and take advantage of people. 
when they're down. May we be people who honor the Lord and glorify the Lord as his children. You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been teaching through the last several books of the Old Testament, also known as the Minor Prophets. These short books are powerful and reveal so much about your Creator and His love for the world. If you have any questions or would like to share a prayer request with us, please contact us. You can reach us by calling 703-771-1500. Again, that number is 703-771-1500. You can also listen to more teachings in this series by visiting our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, or just download our mobile app. That way you'll have biblical messages available to listen to whenever you want, wherever you are. Pastor Gary also has a companion resource available for this Minor Prophets series. You'll find it under the Teachings tab at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd love to meet you, too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find out more on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Study the Minor Prophets. And we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know